Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, what is a hole? I mean, is a hole anything or is it simply the absence of stuff, the absence of something while there's a lot of other surrounding things that are things? You can see how hard this is to talk about, but we're going to talk today about holes, both in the abstract and uh, very practically. You may remember the 2000 election in some ways came down to the question of whether something was a hole or not. That was the whole hanging chat thing. We'll also talk about why people are afraid of holes. Well, sinkholes. I'm afraid of sinkholes. And I'm afraid of black holes, too. And we're going to give you the exciting news that there's a newly discovered black hole that is, relatively speaking, right on our doorstep. Don't worry, it's not going to hurt you. So Jesus says to his disciples, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. That's a, you know, it's fine, right? That's good. But today we are going to consider the hole in which the lilies of the field are planted or perhaps holes. We are doing a show today about holes. We're going to try to talk about holes in as many different ways as we possibly can, including holes, qua holes. <laughs> I don't know why that's. I don't know why that made me laugh, but it did. All right, so um, so you know when you start thinking about holes, start looking around at holes. I mean, they're sort of everywhere, um, and we talk about it metaphorically too. I mean, we talk about a plot hole uh, that you could back a truck through. We talk about going down a rabbit hole when we when we're talking about going down into some pit of information that we usually find on the internet that we may not emerge from for a long time. We talk about how the first law of holes is to stop digging. And the newest one is the K-hole, which is a suddenly very viral, you should pardon the expression, term for the comprehensive disassociation and incapacitation brought on by using the drug ketamine. But before I introduce uh, our, our primary guest here, and I should say, towards the end of the show, we'll talk about black holes. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, the fear of holes. But to talk about holes as comprehensively as possible, uh, we have with us today uh, um, Achille Varzi, who is a professor of philosophy at Columbia University and the co-author of the book Holes and Other Superficialities. But before you meet Achille Varzi, uh, why don't you meet Jerry Seinfeld, who has something to say on this topic? The donut hole. The donut hole. Let's stop right there. What a horrible little snack. If you want a donut, have a donut. Why are you eating the hole? It's, a, it's such a freaky metaphysical concept to begin with. You, you can't sell people holes. A, a hole, a hole does not exist. Words have meanings. A hole... A hole is the absence of whatever is surrounding it. Okay? If they were really donut holes, the bag would be empty. 
okay? And the donuts that you got the holes from wouldn't have holes because you took them. All right, so uh, Kile Varzi, uh, that's as good a jumping off place into holes uh, as any. Um, and what he's really exploring is kind of a question uh, of phenomenology or something, which is, is a hole a thing or not? We talk about a hole as though it's a thing. There's a hole right there. Um, but just because we use that word linguistically doesn't mean that a hole is a thing. So maybe that's the big question, right? Is a hole a thing? Um, Jerry Seinfeld's pet, uh, thing is actually quite uh, on spot. Uh, he says two things. One is correct and true. The other is wrong. He says that holes do not exist, or rather a hole does not exist. And he says... A hole is the absence of whatever surrounds it. Um, the second thing is correct. That's what holes are, um, in a way. Um, a hole is where something isn't. Something is missing. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. It doesn't mean that uh, just because something is missing, um, uh, a hole has no dignity, no ontological dignity, as uh, philosophers would say. It's just that there are things of a different kind. We live in a materialist world. Um, everything is made of something, uh, stone, uh, uh, water, whatever. Some things are made of nothing. Those things are the holes. Is there a, um, a maybe a kind of a taxonomical question that's worth asking about intentionality? And, and by this, I mean, for example, upstairs in my kitchen, I have a number of colanders or strainers, right? And so without holes, it's a very ineffectual piece of metal or plastic to be the thing that it wants to be. Uh, it has to have holes. But if a hole appears in my sweater, um, uh, not the holes that I put my uh, wrists through or my head through, um, but a new hole, that's a hole I don't want. So I, I don't know, are all holes the same or is the, the unwanted, unsought, accidental product of the second law of thermodynamics hole different from a hole that we needed or wanted in the first place? Well, the holes are just like ordinary things. Uh, some of them are good, some of them aren't. Some of them are useful, some of them um, bother us. So, of course, the holes in the colander or the holes in the flute, uh, those are good holes, and we do things with them, or rather we do things with the stuff around them. Um, uh, other holes, uh, such as a hole in a sweater or in your pocket or a hole in your bag, uh, those are not so good. But uh, that doesn't mean that they are different things or different kinds of holes. It's just our perspective on them that changes uh, as with everything. Uh, we like some things because we find them useful and we dislike some other things because uh, they bother us. So that's, I don't think that's a taxonomy that uh, is uh, robust enough to deserve scientific <laughs> investigation. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, it is true that not all holes are equal. Uh, in the sense that there is room for important distinctions. Um, for example, some holes go through uh, a given object. Um, for example, the hole in the donut, or I don't know, um, you take a, a, a brick and you, you uh, drill uh, through the brick, uh, you have an opening, uh, 
you have an entrance uh, and then you have uh, an exit, a tunnel in a mountain, for instance, when you drive through a tunnel, you enter the tunnel and then you exit the tunnel. So that kind of a hole has this important feature that it goes through something. Others, uh, for example, a hole you dig in the ground, um, don't go through anything. There are just some absence, uh, to go back to the Seinfeld definition, uh, but they don't perforate, they don't go through. That's an important distinction, which, by the way, um, uh, is at the center of uh, the whole field of uh, topology in, the, in mathematics, the distinction between things that have perforations and things that do not. And right. then, of course, there are also some holes that are hidden inside, uh, like a little bubble inside a wheel of uh, Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a hole, in a way, but it doesn't go through, it's inside, and um, it's still different from the kind of hole that you uh, start digging uh, from the outside. So there is room for interesting taxonomies here. And, of course, holes themselves have all sorts of shapes, and you may want to distinguish uh, them uh, by the shapes. And uh, all of this is, of course, um, 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 a way of saying that uh, just like ordinary objects, uh, holes do uh, come in various sorts. They're not all equal. And uh, maybe we like some as opposed to others also because of the features they have with respect to this kind of taxonomy. Right. Well, so many places I want to go from there. I guess we could also have a conversation and people do have conversations uh, if we're going to talk about that kind of morphology about whether you can call. Well, for example, you didn't mention straws. OK, so a straw has a hole that goes all the way through, although arguably a straw is also just one piece of plastic or paper or whatever it's made of um, wrapped up into a cylinder. It's one piece. It doesn't have a hole in it. It's a it's something that creates a hole as a byproduct of what you've done with it. I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm no That's expert good. in these things, but you are. <laughs> That's a good example. I, I remember there was a poll on Twitter a while ago on how many holes um, uh, does a, a drinking straw have, and I think more than fifty percent said one hole, and uh, the rest said two holes. Um, Oh, it was the opposite, sorry. More than 50% said two holes, and mm. about 45% said one hole. Uh, the right answer there is one. <laughs> it's got one entrance and one exit, but it is a perforation exactly as in the case of the tunnel through the mountain, except that in this case, um, the, uh, the matter uh, surrounding the hole is so thin that we tend to focus on the entrance and on the exit uh, without seeing uh, uh, the fact that they are connected. Um, uh, of course, as you said, uh, this is a tricky case because the thin matter surrounding the tunnel uh, suggests that we have um, created that hole not by digging, as with uh, the tunnel through the mountain, but simply by taking, uh, I don't know, a sheet or something and, and uh, uh, connecting the sides so as to form a cylinder of, of some sort. Uh, how holes are created is by itself a very interesting question. Some of them are the result of digging or perforating through something that exists already. Some of them are, as with a donut, uh, perhaps the result of connecting um, the beginning and the end of some kind of a tube so as to form um, a ring. 
Others are created in different ways. Uh, that's by itself, that is by itself an interesting question. Um, but in all of these cases, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, the whole quay hole, which I uh, picked immediately. Um, uh, all of these cases, um, however, share the following very important feature that um, there is no such a thing as a whole uh, quay hole or as a whole in itself. A whole always needs a material host, so to speak. A whole always needs something in which to be a whole. Wholes are parasitic entities. And when Jerry Seinfeld worries uh, wonders uh, about a hole in the donut um, and what happens to the hole, uh, that worry connects precisely to this point. You cannot uh, go to a store, buy your donut, and leave the hole at the store. The hole <laughs> is attached to the donut. Right. It cannot exist without the donut. It is a parasite. And this is what makes holes particularly interesting. They're a good example of um, things, uh, the existence of which requires the existence of something else. Right. Uh, you, can, you can drop the gun and take the cannolis, but you can't drop the hole and take the donut. Um, so good. that raises a question. That, um, at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about black holes. And, and it raises a question about whether a black hole can really be a hole, right? Because that's a hole without a host. That's correct. In fact, I don't think it is a hole. <laughs> it's a good example of how uh, in science we use words from ordinary language to describe something, a phenomenon, or maybe um, uh, entities of various kinds uh, in intuitive uh, terms, but uh, of course it doesn't mean that uh, the meaning is preserved. I, I don't think black holes are holes in the sense in which uh, uh, a hole in a donut is a hole or a hole uh, through a mountain um, is a hole. So I want to go back but, to the question um, of, of how, yeah, com yeah, co how comprehensive we're going to be in ascribing the, 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 the characteristics of a hole to something. And let me give an, another example from up in my kitchen. All right. So in my kitchen, I mean, we talk about potholes and roads. Roads. I'm not talking about that kind of pothole. Uh, but up in my kitchen, I have pots. And in order for it to be a pot, there is an opening. There's an aperture, which leads then to space, which then ends in the sides and the bottom of the pot. So I, I would sort of say that if I had a hole in my pot, uh, that would be bad because the soup would leak out of the hole. Uh, but uh, it seems as though it could be argued that the pot itself uh, in its proper state is or has a whole. Comment on that. Very good. <laughs> so this is where the distinctions that I mentioned earlier uh, become very important. The distinction between holes that go through versus uh, holes that are, so to speak, dead, dead ends or blind holes. Um, um, in the case of a pot, uh, or for that matter, a mug, um, there is a cavity that is very useful. That's why uh, they are um, made that way. The cavity is where you pour your stuff uh, to cook or to drink. And um, the sense in which uh, this cavity, this um, um, uh, particular aspect of the shape of the material object you're holding in your hands, the sense in which that counts as a whole is that it can be filled with stuff. It can be filled with liquids, with food, 
with whatever you want to put in there. Now, of course, it is very strange to say, if you're holding a mug or a pot, uh, to say that it has a hole in it, because of course, everybody would think that uh, you're talking about something else than the cavity we've just described. Uh, one would think that you're talking about a hole through which your liquid or your stuff can leak out. Now, that second sense uh, corresponds to uh, a hole um, as a perforation, as something that goes through the material object. And in fact, that would have a, an opening, an, an entrance, so to speak, and an exit. Um, so, uh, in one sense, uh, your, uh, your pot or your mug has a hole insofar as it has a cavity that can be filled. In another sense, if it is in good shape, it doesn't have a hole insofar as it is not perforated. Now, if it were perforated, it would still have just one hole because, of course, the <laughs> cavity and the perforation would meet <laughs> and, uh, and the cavity loses its function and the perforation takes over. So, in a way, perforations are much more powerful than cavities. Uh, once you have a perforation, you're in real trouble. A cavity can easily be flattened uh, uh, out. Um, that's an important distinction, right? So if, if you have your, take your, um, your pot or your dish, um, and suppose it is made of um, um, you know, rubbery stuff as opposed to hard uh, material, you could, of course, flatten out the whole thing and the whole thing will look like a pizza, a flat disc. You can get rid, in other words, of mm -hmm. the cavity. But if it has a perforation, if it has a hole that goes through it, it's going to be very hard for you to get rid of it. In fact, uh, there's a sense in which you can't go get rid of it without uh, somehow um, cutting or, or gluing or doing something uh, that will disrupt uh, the structure of your object. Right. You'd be often better off sense? getting rid of the pot than getting rid of the hole. Um, exactly. So exactly, exactly. I, I want to talk a little bit about how we relate emotionally or to to holes. Wow. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I think that has emerged as an architectural trend in recent years is the notion that if you're going to commemorate something that's sorrowful, it doesn't really make sense to do what we've done for centuries, which is to erect some kind of spike up into the air, you know, some kind of pedestal or something. That And so what we have is Maya Lin's famous Vietnam Memorial, which really is uh, in a hole in the ground. Uh, and, and then to go beyond that, the memorial in New York City at the World Trade Center, the former World Trade Trade Center site is this incredibly dolorous fountain that just goes into the ground. It's this kind of deep, bottomless looking uh, hole into which water runs. And, and it made me think that there's something about holes. You know, you said at the beginning that holes should be afforded some dignity. Uh, but there's something about holes that make us a little bit sad uh, it's hard to think of holes without getting into sex. It's hard to think about holes that cause us joy. Um, well, I, I know I think there are lots of holes that cause us joy, but you're right about um, this um, uh, use of holes uh, when it comes to uh, sorrowful um, memorials. And of course, the big ones in, in, in New York City are. Um, 
extremely uh, dramatic. And I think there is a, a, a reason why holes uh, trigger such uh, sense of uh, sorrow, uh, precisely because uh, holes are there where something is missing. Let's go back to this uh, mm -hmm. way of introducing the very notion, right? Uh, a hole is there where something is missing. And when it comes to memorials of uh, baby sad events, typically uh, those are events where uh, we miss someone or something. And so um, there is a deep connection uh, somewhere inside us between the presence of a hole and the absence of something. And by seeing the hole, we're reminding we're reminded of what's missing. And um, of course, a lot depends on exactly how the whole is um, um, shaped and, and, and the context and so on. We don't feel any sorrow when we see a donut uh, or when we see a pot, uh, but when we see a hole in the ground there where a building was, where we see a hole in the ground there where something uh, that we cared about was, of course, the hole is a very um, emotional uh, reminder of uh, what's not there anymore. Right. And, and it's also a memento mori. I mean, we know that many of us will wind up in a hole in the ground ourselves uh, when it's all over. So uh, we're talking to uh, uh, Kile Vartzi, uh, professor of philosophy at Columbia University, the co-author of the book Holes and Other Superficialities. So you know, um, well, we have to get right to, to holes in the news. And the particular thing I want to talk about, because I know that you've spoken about it in the past, is in the year 2000 here in the United States, the question of what was or was not a hole suddenly became a matter not merely of philosophy, but a matter of law and politics. As we attempted to figure out who was the president of the United States, it seemed to devolve upon these ballots in which holes were supposed to be punched. Uh, but uh, certain things, uh, certain holes had so-called hanging chads, had they been punched out all the way. Uh, and you, as perhaps the world's leading authority on holes, were uh, asked to comment about this. So, so take us back to the year 2000. Okay. And what were you thinking about those holes at that time? Yeah, thank you. Well, that's when I missed my chance to apply for a grant to work <laughs> on this topic. Uh, I had a good argument, actually, um, that the destiny of the United States, in fact, the destiny of the whole world, um, depended on our criteria for counting, identifying and counting holes. Anyway, so here's how what happened. So remember, um, this was uh, the famous case when, um, I think it was November 7, uh, 2000, uh, you know, the, the evening of uh, election day, there were still three um, states that were too uh, close to call. The other ones uh, were pretty clear. And I think Bush had about 246 um, uh, votes, uh, electoral votes, and um, Al Gore had 200, uh, sorry, no, Bush had about 250 and Gore, no, how was well, it? Well, it doesn't Bush, matter, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, anyway, both- We're going down a rabbit hole here. Yeah, this is a rabbit hole, sorry. <laughs> so both were short of uh, a few votes and it all came down to what happened in Florida. And in Florida, uh, we learned the next morning, the difference between the two candidates was incredibly small. It was uh, 1,700 votes or so, uh, which is very, very small, much below the margin of error 
of the uh, machines that you know did the um, uh, the book counting. So the law requires that you do a recount. The recount uh, actually made the difference even smaller, and at that point they decided to go for a manual recount to count the battles by hands. And what turned out to be a big problem is precisely that uh, in Florida, they vote by punching a hole through uh, a ballot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, next to the name of the candidate. Yeah. And punching a hole is an interesting operation, but it, you know, it's not always as successful as it's supposed to be, which is to say that in many cases, you think you punched a nice hole, but the little piece of paper didn't quite come out. It was still attached right. to the so, ballot. So that came to be no. called a, a hanging chad. So exactly. just, just to sort of fast forward exactly. to the end. So I, I'm sensing, as you tell this story, that your ultimate decision wa- would have been that if there's an obvious attempt to punch a hole, that counts as a hole. Um, in a way, yes. I mean, I remember one evening... Um, one of the uh, people involved in the manual recount, um, I think it was from the uh, cabin seat board of, of Palm Beach, was um, interviewed on TV and they asked him, why uh, is it taking so long? Um, we need to have, we need the answer. And he uh, raised his hand in despair and he said, you know, you know what the problem is? No one here is a whole expert. <laughs> so the next morning at 9 a.m., I, I got a phone call uh, from CNN saying, good morning, we understand you're a whole expert. And that's how the story went. But yeah. in the end of the day, um, here, the issue is not only um, um, that we need to have good criteria for telling whether or not uh, there is, in fact, a hole in the uh, ballot, whether or not uh, Chad, the still hanging, uh, should or should not count on the grounds of, as it were, purely geometric uh, considerations. Of course, the issue here is whether there is a clear sign of someone trying to punch a hole in the ballot. Mm. So and, and it's interesting because um, here the uh, idea of a hole is closely connected to the idea of the process uh, that leads to the uh, creation of a hole. I said earlier, you know, we were talking about various kinds of holes and we said that you know, holes can be created in many different ways. Now here, the creation of the hole was really the act of punching a hole uh, through the ballot using a stylus of some sort. Now, what matters clearly is the fact that a voter is trying to express their choice by punching the hole. Now, if they fail to produce a beautiful, topologically elegant hole, then there may be a problem. But of course, the issue here is whether we can detect just on the basis of the ballot that we see in front of us, what the uh, intent of the voter was. And that's, of course, not easy. Also right. because I, I'm going to have to take it back from you just because we're running up a, on a signpost here. But Akile Varce, I think we know how it turned out. Uh, anyway, professor of philosophy at Columbia University, co-author of the book Holes and Other Superficialities. Thank you so much for being with us Thank today. You. And we're going to come back with a, a quick discussion of the fear of holes. But, but, I spoke in the car about the hole at the center of this donut. And what you and Holland did that fateful night seems at first glance to fill that hole perfectly. A donut hole in a donut's hole. But we must look a little closer. And when we do, we see the donut hole 
has a hole in it, Senna. It is not a donut hole, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut is not a hole at all. Girl Scout camp, nobody's gonna babysit you. Dig here. Now, if you find anything interesting, you are to report it to me or Pendensky. If the warden likes what you find, you get the rest of the day off. What am I supposed to be looking for, Mr. Sir? You're not looking for anything. You're building character. You take a bad boy, make him dig holes all day in the hot sun, and it turns him into a good boy. That's our philosophy here at Camp Green Lake. Start digging. All right, that was a, sl- a slightly longer explanation of hanging chads than I thought I was going to get. So we must quickly uh, switch gears here to uh, Chrissy Giles, a science writer and global health editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. There's something kind of scary, I think, for all of us about certain kinds of holes. A sinkhole, for example, is kind of a scary concept. Uh, but there's some people who are afflicted with something a little bit more clinical or maybe a lot. I believe it's pronounced trypophobia, but I'll be I'll stand corrected. Uh, Chrissy Giles, tell us uh, about this syndrome. And first of all, is that how you say it? Trypophobia? That's how I say it. Okay. No one's corrected me yet. It's one of those things that you probably read more than you say until right. you realize you're on public radio and you probably should have checked beforehand. <laughs> um, hey, thanks for having me. I've got a really big urge for donuts right now and I can't, can't work out why. Um, yeah, so trypophobia, it's one of these kind of, I'd say uh, conditions that's on the fringes of medicine still. So it's not something that's recognized widely as a phobia in the sense of arachnophobia or, you know, a fear of heights or a fear of public speaking. Um, But I would say for the people that have this condition, it's extremely real. And what trypophobia seems to be characterized by is a fear, kind of a rational fear around clusters of holes or cracks. Um, So you'll probably see examples in, in the media. There was a Kind of bit of a brewery when the um, iPhone 11 came out because of that cluster of cameras on the back. Yes. Um, lots of people weren't enjoying that. There's um there was a case in the UK of um, somebody who was scared of crumpets. Crumpets are like kind of drop scones we have here that are full of holes. Everything from cake batter to car headlights to bubbles or coral. It seems like different things can trigger people with trypophobia. And probably if anyone has got it and they're listening, we should actually probably warn them a little bit because I think it's it's possible to trigger people by even just talking about the nature of these images, although it is a very visually led condition. 
Right. So if you uh, have a problem hearing about the kinds of holes that trigger trypophobia attacks, uh, just turn your radio off or down for the next four or five minutes. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I feel like I try to keep up on phobias. I've never heard of this phobia. You're kind of suggesting at the outset that it's it's maybe a second or it's like a C-list phobia or something. It's not as well known. Well, I don't, I don't want to grade phobias. I think, you know, <laughs> people that experience conditions like this experience in their real. What I would say is the, the book that people tend to go to, this thing called the DSM, which is basically the American Psychiatric Association's Bible, if you will. Um, their latest edition, number five, which I'm sure we've all read, doesn't actually list trypophobia. It mentions a couple of specific phobias and then it mentions kind of other conditions that cause a significant impact to your life. So if you look on PubMed, which is the kind of database online for science papers that are published in you know, recognized journals, there's probably only 20 or 21 papers that mention trypophobia in the title. So it's definitely not something that you will go and see maybe your doctor or psychiatrist about, and they will necessarily have seen a ton of patients with it before. Um, I think what the research is trying to understand is really kind of half, you know, where has it come from? What could it be? And, you know, half why does it happen and how can we treat it? So I feel you know, at the moment there's a lot of um, interest around, it's been coined as a phobia. A, a woman on the internet from Ireland in, the, in 2005 came up with it because she picked Greek word for holes and the Greek word for fear. And she was like, this is what I think I've got. Now the question is whether it's really a phobia because most of the time when you talk about a phobia, we're talking about something that's based on irrational fear. So if you think about, you know, going up a ladder if you've got fear of heights you're, you're terrified there are some phobias that are a mixture of fear and disgust so something like arachnophobia with spiders or a snake phobia you're kind of terrified but you're also completely icked out by it what some researchers have found is that with trypophobia it's almost entirely a disgust response rather than a fear response so you know if you're looking at categorizing conditions you might say well it's not a phobia it's a disgust-based phobia and therefore is it a phobia but that's slightly splitting hairs. But I think what is interesting about it is the idea that it is triggering this disgust. And, you know, disgust has evolved to stop us from doing stuff that makes us sick. So if you see a pile of poo or a pile of sick on the pavement, you're probably going to, you know, sidestep it. And just the same with coronavirus at the moment. Those of us that have always been alert to contamination fears around coughing or runny noses or people looking unwell with a fever, you know, I think we're all suddenly aware of those cues that, you know, were always in the back of our kind of lizard brain, but now we're seeing them, you know, kind of writ large. And I think the thing with trypophobia is it's almost like seeing these holes or these cracks with people with trypophobia is almost tripping that lizard switch and saying, get out, get away. Right. And it might have had an adaptive purpose at some point. Sticking your finger down right. a hole that had, you know, a bad snake in it would be a problem. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up here. If people are wondering whether this is real or not, I always ask myself, do any celebrities have it? Do Kardashians suffer, suffer from it too? All right. We have to take a break. Thanks to Chrissy Giles so much. I wish we had more time, but we've got the black hole thing coming right up here.
Even the simple act of playing has been taken away from children and put on mommy's schedule in the form of play dates. Something that should be spontaneous and free is now being rigidly planned. When does a kid ever get to sit in the yard with a stick anymore? You know, just sit there with a stick. Do today's kids even know what a stick is? You know? You sit in the yard with a stick and you dig a hole. You know? Yeah. And you look at the hole and you look at the stick and you have a little fun. So we couldn't do a show about holes without talking about black holes. And of course, there's one pressing, never to be answered question about black holes, which of course is, do they come in other colors? Uh, but to answer the rest of the questions, we have Marina Corrin, a staff writer at The Atlantic. Marina Corrin, welcome to our show. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. So you've written an awful lot about black holes. There's a reason to have a black hole conversation on this day because we have one supposedly, quote, almost on our doorstep, unquote, although we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, relative uh, distances we're talking that, that are involved in a statement like that one. But just uh, maybe we will begin by reminding people what a black hole is. And this is a little clip from The Theory of Everything. You'll hear Christian McKay as uh, Roger Penrose. The star. More than three times the size of our sun ought to end its life, how? With a collapse. The gravitational forces of the entire mass overcoming the electromagnetic forces of individual atoms and so collapsing inwards. If the star is massive enough, it will continue this collapse, creating a black hole where the warping of space-time is so great that nothing can escape, not even light. It gets smaller smaller. The star, in fact, gets denser as atoms, even subatomic particles, get literally crushed into smaller and smaller space. And at its end point, what are we left with? A space-time singularity. Space and time come to a stop. Marina Corrin, how did Roger Penrose do? Is that is that what we need to know about a black hole? I think that's all we have to know about a black hole. I'm not sure how I'm going to top that. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty good um, explanation. Yeah, so and uh, we should say that it has to be a pretty massive star. For example, our sun would not be eligible right now to turn into a black hole. It's, it's not big enough, right? Usually uh, the most massive stars, when they um, get too old, they burn through their fuel and they die, they're the ones that are going to turn into a black hole or a different type of object called a neutron star, which is for another time, another story. Uh, but yeah, there are black holes um, everywhere in our galaxy and the universe beyond because there have been stars everywhere and some of them have died and moved on to this next phase of their lives. So um, if a black hole is essentially nothing, um, how do we find them? How do we know they're there? Yeah, that's the tricky thing about looking for something that is pretty much invisible. It's very hard to find black holes. And astronomers have only seen... Um, a very tiny fraction of the ones that they think are out there. And the way that you look for a black hole is by looking for stuff around it. 
So sometimes black holes are surrounded by stars that then get a little too close and the black holes are hungry. They start feeding on these stars and start really shredding them and tearing them apart. And that process can actually be so luminous that it can be detected from our telescopes back on Earth. So the way that you find a black hole is by looking at, I guess you could say, the meal that it's consuming all around it, which is really, really bright. Right. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of the, the paradox of the black hole, right? Once it starts eating, um, it actually starts making or, or creating a sensation that will drown out other objects with the, with the amount of light that's up there. That's right. And it, it, this process emits so much radiation that sometimes telescopes here on Earth, they can't look directly at what's happening, even though it's really, really far away looking at this process could actually fry the electronics on some telescopes. That's how bright things get, the surroundings around a black hole can get when it when it's feeding on nearby stellar material. So astronomers have discovered a black hole in one of the constellations. It's called Telescopium. I will admit that a, that's, a, I guess, a pretty good kind of an on-the-nose name for a constellation and that I'd never heard of Telescopium. But it's a thousand light years away, uh, and that would be closer than any black hole, closer to us than any black hole found to date, correct? That's right. Um, I mean, for our purposes, for the purposes of staying alive and not getting sucked into a black hole, um, we are completely safe. But a thousand light years away, um, I talked to a couple of astronomers about what exactly that means to them. And they say that's right in our backyard on cosmic scales that's practically on our doorstep. Right. It's 5.88 quadrillion miles away, whatever that means. But th this is it's close just in the sense that the universe is a really, really, really big place. Um, but it also doesn't mean, and I think you were sort of implying this earlier in our conversation, it doesn't mean that there aren't black holes that are much closer, right? Because there's just, we haven't ever really comprehensively understood how to map them. That's right. There are probably black holes much closer in, um, and they, those still wouldn't be a danger to us. But again, the trick is not being able to see these things. And what's interesting about this black hole, the one that's a thousand light years away, um, it wasn't found in the same way that astronomers usually look for black holes. Um, this black hole is not feeding on anything nearby. So the way they found it is by looking at the, um, basically there's two stars in the, in the constellation Telescopium, which you mentioned, um, which is a great name. You can thank a French guy in the 18th century for that. Um, astronomers were looking at these two stars in the, tele in the constellation Telescopium, and they saw that one of the stars was being flung around um, and kind of like an, at an insane velocity. And they did some math to figure out what nearby could be causing this star to move like that. And they realized that it has to be a really massive object. And if you have a really massive object there, you can't hide it. You know, you'd, you'd be able to see that thing unless, of course, it was invisible. It was a black hole. Uh, another thing that we've experienced within the last year or so, and about, I think it was about a year ago that I was doing a show and kind of a, in a pu public forum about astronomy. Uh, and I was just sort of amazed by how many things are going on in astronomy at any, at any given moment. I mean, just the, the, the sheer number of discoveries, the number of probes that are out there coming close to the sun or, you know, sampling material from meteors. I mean, it's, it's or from asteroids, I guess. Uh, it, it's incredible. But one thing that was happening right around that time was we were about to get to see for the first time a picture, a photograph. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it. 
uh, of a black hole. Although, ultimately, even that sounds like a paradox. But remind us what was happening there with that uh, that visual image. That's right. So that was happening, I think it was April of last year. Uh, this was, um, I think pictures is a good way to call it. I mean, it's the best picture astronomers ever took of a black hole. Um, and they did it by basically syncing up a bunch of telescopes on Earth on a bunch of different continents and having them work as one and, and had them stare into the middle of this other galaxy until they could pick up the, the light around a black hole that we talked about. Again, you can't see the black hole itself, but what they managed to see was the black hole in silhouette. Um, as it was casting a shadow on all of the stellar material that was just glowing all around it. Um, to us, it looks like kind of an orange blob, but it's a really incredible feat in astronomy to be able to capture some type of view of the black hole. Um, we wouldn't be able to see that kind of picture with this, uh, this other black hole that's nearby because, again, there's, it's not feeding on anything, so you'd just be seeing a point of darkness. Yeah, I mean, right now it's just whipping that star around instead uh, of actually eating. So I want to go back to this idea of you know where there whether there might be other um, black holes closer than the one that's just been discovered. I mean, you just have to kind of assume that first of all, we we although they haven't located these black holes, you know kind of that there's a certain amount of proliferation of black holes all over the universe. And so if you were just to assume that we are not living any place special. Uh, that's one reason one would suppose that there are black holes closer than this one that's a thousand light years away, right? Right. So one of the uh, astronomers that I talked to, um, he said the same thing that you just did. You know, the, the general assumption in astronomy is that we don't live anywhere special or magical in the universe. So whatever we see nearby has to exist elsewhere. Um, and that's that also means that it probably exists a little bit closer in. Um, you know, scientists estimate that there are hundreds of millions of black holes in our galaxy alone. And if you spread those out, uh, you know, it's, it's very likely that there are some nearby. And it's also possible that they're not orbiting any stars. Um, and there would be no way for us to see them because there's not even, you know, a pair of stars to kind of act as a beacon and, and light the way and show us where these black holes are. These could be massive stars that just died on their own and they're now just drifting around. But again, no danger to us, especially this one is only four times the mass of our sun. Um, and then if you compare that to the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is a couple million times the, the mass of our sun, I'll have to check that. <laughs> These are unfathomable scales. But you know, as far as black holes go, this one nearby is kind of small. So, you know, Marina, we're living in a time where people are just kind of perpetually freaked out uh, all day long. I find that black holes, rather than inspiring me in me some kind of reverent awe for the vastness and complexity of the universe, they do kind of freak me out. Maybe it's the name. Maybe it's the idea that space and time kind of stop, you know, uh, uh, inside them. Uh, I'm not sure what it is about them, and I'm not sure whether you share that reaction. But just reading all the material for this particular segment, I found myself getting a little uneasy. There's something dizzying about the black hole. Yeah, I can, I can completely understand that. And I think that black holes have a bad reputation and it's not their fault. Because if you read most stories about black holes, um, the writers call them like these giant monsters in space and, you know, they're just gnawing at stars and devouring them. Um, and, you know, these are 
the black holes don't care. Leave them alone. They're just there. They're just chilling. Um, but of course, I do understand why they can freak people out, especially now when we f- we're living in kind of such doomsday-ish times. The idea of a black hole near Earth um, just kind of feeds into that. You know, people were making jokes about the murder hornets coming from the black hole. They were suggesting putting those murder hornets into the black hole. Um, it's just interesting to see what this astrophysical object can kind of, um, you know, invoke in people's minds, but they're, um, they're not going to hurt anybody. They're just doing their own thing. They're not asking us to project, you know, our meaning, whatever that may be onto them. They're just hanging out. And they don't want, you know, a a crew led by Lawrence Fishburne or somebody to come up and visit them either. Um, and it, and it wouldn't be a good idea, but you, you could make it a case anyway that they're due for a rebranding. I mean, black hole, I don't know. They, couldn't they be called like a, a singularity or something? <laughs> it just sounds so much less upsetting. Uh, I'm sure there's some massive ad agency uh, waiting to do this. Uh, but Marina Corin, thank you so much for spending some time talking to us about this black hole, which is, relatively speaking, on our doorstep. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Down in the hole. Down in the hole. Down. that's been our show about holes. Once again, thanks to Jonathan McNichol for producing this episode, Cat Pastor for keeping it running, and I don't think there were any holes in, in radio. That's a good thing. <laughs>